Good morning, everyone. It is super awesome to be doing this. Okay, there's, that's new. The last time I did this, I think that wasn't there. Okay, don't hurt your ankle on that. Now, top tip, if you ever preach or you ever have to do this, take a sip of water before you start. All right. So today I'm preaching on... Oh, Today I'm preaching on 1 Timothy chapter 5 and then two verses in chapter 6. And it really is a passage on treating people within the church, how we treat people within the church. And what I want you to get out of today is that different people matter to God and we as the church need to extend that feeling of people valuing to others. So let's, let's get going. So I started reading um, Timothy when Paul asked me to preach, and I like to read the NIV purely because it's the version of the Bible I have always read, and I'm a creature of habit. And so I got out my good old NIV. Ooh, I left the clicker behind. Dave, can you pass me the... Thanks. Dan is always involved in my sermon <laughs> at the beginning to help me organize myself. All right, let's go. It was, and now it isn't. Okay, right, so I went to the NIV and I got, do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. And I was like, oh, that's an interesting place to put a comma. I wonder if it means we have to treat the younger men and the older women and the younger women as sisters, because like, that's what that comma is telling me. So then I wasn't sure. So I was like, okay, I'll go to the NLT. So then I went to the NLT and it says, never speak harshly to an older man, but appeal to him respectfully as you would your own father. Ah, okay, so older men, we need to be respectful. Talk to younger men as you would your own brothers, full stop. Treat older women as you would your mother, and treat younger women with all purity as you would your own sisters. Okay, cool. So that comma means that the purity is only about the younger woman. All right, so the other guys, no purity. Okay, cool. Then I started reading the commentaries, and then one of the commentaries said that the purity was about everyone. I was like, oh man. Okay, so... One of my favorite platform preachers is Christine Kane. What would she do? She would read from the Amplified. All right, so what does the Amplified say? Guys, this is my process. This is why preaching takes me months. Right, she's, she would say, do not, or she would read, do not sharply reprimand an older man. So we need to have respect for older men because they're quite set in their ways. Okay, appeal to him, appeal, make your case as you would to a father. So when I make my case to a father, I sit my father down and I say, hey, dad, I think this is how it is. And, and we have a dialogue and it's a conversation. Okay, so this is how we need to be treating older men. We need to be treating them with respect. We need to enter into dialogue. We need to have a conversation. We can't just instruct them. Now to younger men, oh, they've put the comma in a different place and now there's no full stop. To younger men as brothers, to older women as mothers, to younger women as sisters, comma, in all purity, being careful to maintain appropriate relationships. 
this actually did not help me. Although the appropriate relationships part was interesting because what's appropriate? So then I thought to myself, what would my mother do? She would go to the King James because isn't that the version that Paul wrote? So the King James says, that was a joke. Paul didn't write the King James. Okay, <clears throat> the King James says, rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father and the younger men as brothers. Ah, semicolon. This punctuation, I understand. This is a list. The elder women as mothers, the younger sisters with all purity. Okay, so the purity is again about the younger sisters. So the NIV, whew, it's fine. The NIV is good. Actually, they're all good. It doesn't matter which version of the Bible you read, right? Paul is saying we need to have relationships with people in the church, fathers, uh, treat uh, elder men as fathers, treat elder women as mothers with the same respect that mothers are due, treat your peers as brothers, and younger women as sisters in all purity, in absolute purity. What I want to bring across here is punctuation is important and can help us understand the word. But it doesn't necessarily mean that we don't need to be treating fathers, mothers, and, sis and brothers with purity in the way that we speak. But this purity that is being spoken of in relation to sisters is, is chasteness. It's respecting them as somebody of the opposite sex who you should not take unnecessary advantage of sexually. Not to be looking at younger... Paul, uh, Timothy was a young man in his early 30s. And so the point here is, Timothy, we understand that you are a young man and that you have sexual drives and that you may think about women in a certain way and you are not allowed to. You have to treat your sisters in the church appropriately. So we're talking about operating as a family. Now remember when we, were, when we did Galatians, we spoke about operating as a family. We're a community of individuals that have come together as a household of faith. And so we need to, as a family, cooperate with one another and avoid competing with one another and make sure that we advance one another's interests in honor, making sure that we do not compete for honor, making sure that we hide one another's personal shames from public view. We don't gossip about each other, making sure that we have a mutual commitment to each other's interests and that there's a deep level of trust within family, sharing resources freely and maintaining harmony and unity and forgiving one another and acting in reconciliation. That is what it means to operate as a church family. But this word purity comes up a couple of times in the book of 1 Timothy, and it comes up twice in this chapter. And so I think it bears um, relevance to pause and say, okay, we're talking about purity. It comes up in, in Timothy 4 verse 12. It comes up in Timothy 5 verse 22, and then 5 verse 1 to 2 about dealing with one another in purity. So let's, let's stop and let's look at this word purity. Now in the Old Testament, the purity was about being guiltless. 
about keeping the law of Moses to the T so that you were completely blameless and innocent in the sight of the Lord. That is what purity was. And it was measured by how well you kept the law and not just the Ten Commandments, guys, the Leviticus. All of those laws. Like if your house has mold, burn it down. (laughs) That's one of the laws. So because this is Old Testament theology and we have gone through the cross and we're now in the New Testament, what does purity look like under the new law of love and freedom in Christ? Why the stress on absolute purity? So let's have a look. Now, poor old Timothy was was working with a church in Ephesus and we heard when we did chapter two about the new Roman woman. So let me give you some context because it's very relevant to what we're going to talk to today. So around 44 BC, and 1 Timothy was written in around 65 BC, in around 44 BC, Caesar changed the Roman law to make it possible for widows to inherit their dowry. So what had happened is when the the, the woman had been married, the family had given the new husband land usually, maybe money, to take care of that woman. And so what was happening is that that law had changed and said if something happens and the relationship is dissolved through divorce, the husband divorces you or you are widowed, that woman kept the land. She got her dowry back. Now this was Amazing, because women all of a sudden could have financial freedom. They could look after themselves if they had been widowed. And if their husbands decided to summarily divorce them, they could get their, they could get their money back. So yay, for, for a, like a small step towards equality for women back in 644 BC. But what had happened was this financial independence had brought about social freedoms and women's spending wildly on parties and clothes and hairstyles that looked like Marge Simpson. Okay, everybody born in the 80s know, oh, Wes knows what I'm talking about. Okay, good. I wondered if that was going to be a relevant example for the front row. Um, and so what they also did was now that they looked very nice, they went after younger men. And so poor Timothy was like prime target for these older, single, new Roman women. And so Paul has to directly say to him, don't go there. If they are older women, you treat them like your mother. And if they're younger women, absolute purity. Do not look at them that way. In fact, the writers of the time of the times wrote that there was very little to distinguish a noble woman from a prostitute in terms of her dress and behavior. And so what happened then, women in relationships whose husbands were still around and they were, they were married, they started to dominate their husbands. And they started to have adulterous relationships because if the husband divorced them, guess what? They got their diary back. 
So poor husbands had a lot more to lose in those days. And in fact, a little bit later on, Caesar realized what was happening and how this financial um, independence was undermining the households and how this promiscuous behavior was undermining the Roman Empire and he, he mandated moral behavior. And so what Paul is calling for here is that moral behavior before the mandate of Caesar. Isn't it interesting how the, the Caesar then used the church standards to try and bring back the household um, and the stability in homes? He used, he used church standards. So Pearl Timothy was contending with all of this promiscuity and flashy dress and over the top, and he had to set an example by his speech and his conduct and his faith. He had to keep himself pure, and he had to make sure that he was pure by wise association. In other words, who was he seen with? Who was he hanging out with? Who was influencing his thoughts? and he had to remain absolutely pure in his relationship to women. So does God's call, or does, does Paul's instruction to Timothy for purity, is that descriptive, or is it prescriptive for us? So when we interpret scripture that was written in a different time, we have to think to ourselves, what is it? We've got a three-step process to follow. Step one, we can say, what does the Bible say? Like, read it, and it's literal. We've done that. What does it mean? So in the context of the time that I've just explained, what does that actually mean? And then you have to say, what does it mean for me? So step one, what does it say? Paul is commanding Timothy to be pure of heart, physically pure and pure by association and distance himself from any involvement with sin. Step two, what does it mean? What does purity look like in the Bible? There's actually a lot of reference to purity in the Bible. So we don't just have to see what it means in Timothy. We can go and look throughout the word and do a study on purity. But obviously there's sexual purity, remaining chaste, not having sexual intercourse before marriage. That is chastity. Then there's self-control, making sure that you exercise control in your, in your speech, in, your, um, in what your hands do, in where you go, self-control. Then there is being morally upright, making sure that you keep the rules, keep the law, um, that, you are above, that your behavior is above approach. Philippians 4 verse 8 says, if you're struggling with what is pure, well then you need to think about what is true. You need to think about what is noble. You need to think about what is right and lovely and admirable and excellent. If that's where your mind goes, then that is what purity of mind looks like. And we need to understand that patience and kindness, when we, when we respond with patience and kindness, in the midst of hardship and injustice, that's acting in the opposite spirit. So when things get hard and unfair, and we're able to react with, just, with, with kindness and understanding, that is what purity looks like in our reactions. What does this mean for us? So step three, Purity sets an example that creates a positive witness for Christ. So if I am 
able to respond in that opposite spirit. That creates a positive witness. But if I turn into my, my daughter and I call it ogre mommy, where I'm like blah, 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 and this does happen in my house. I will be honest with you. Every now and then, it's just short fuse and explosion. Ogre mommy. That is not purity of spirit. That is the opposite. Even though she might be driving me crazy, I still do not, I still should not be reacting like that. So, why should we have purity in our lives, in all aspects of our lives? Well, purity opens our access to God. It opens our access to enter the most high throne room. Who may climb the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Only those with hands and hearts that are pure. Do not worship idols and never tell lies. They will receive the Lord's blessing and have a right relationship with God. When we are striving for purity in all aspects of our lives, guys, I mean, we're human. We're, we are fallible. It is impossible to get this right 100% of the time. But what I'm saying is it is all purity, absolute purity. And when we're striving for that in our lives and we are, we are under submission to God saying, Lord, I submit all of this to you. I submit my sexual relationships to you. I submit my relationships, my, my difficult relationships where it's hard for me to respond in the opposite spirit to you. I submit my business to you and to make sure that I am dealing ethically and morally in all of my dealings. I submit that to you. When we live a life of submission, this is when we have access to the throne room of God. This is why we are called to purity because that's where he wants us. That's how we get there. If we want a relationship with God that is free from that niggling guilt and shame that gets in the way when we try and have a, a time with him, that gets in the way when we try to pray to him, that gets in the way when we try to have a quiet time, that gets in the way when we're standing in worship and you've just got that little thing going, you're not good enough to be here because I know what you looked, like, looked at on your computer last night. When we put that aside and we chase after purity, we open up our access to the throne room of heaven. Let's have a look at 1 Timothy 5, verse 3 to 10. So now we're changing direction and we are talking specifically here about widows. All right, let's read together. Take care of any widow who has no one else to care for her. But if she has children or grandchildren, their first responsibility is to show godliness at home and repay their parents by taking care of them. Parents. So this is about women who are widowed and men who are widowers, right? Parents. Okay. This is something that pleases God. Now, a true widow, a woman, woman who is truly alone in this world, has placed her hope in God. She prays night and day, asking God for his help. But the widow who lives for pleasure is spiritually dead, even while she lives. 
Give these instructions to the church so that no one will be open to criticism. But those who won't care for their relatives, especially those in their own household, have denied the true faith. Such people are worse than unbelievers. A widow who is put on the list for support must be a woman who is at least 60 years old and was faithful to her husband. She must be well respected by everyone because of the good she has done. Has she brought up her children well? Has she been kind to strangers and served other believers humbly? Has she helped those who are in trouble? Has she always been ready to do good? And it keeps going about widows. The younger widows should not be on the list because their physical desires will overpower their devotion to Christ and they will want to remarry. Then they would be guilty of breaking their previous pledge. And if they are on the list, they will learn to be lazy and spend their time gossiping, going from house to house, meddling in other people's business and talking about the things they shouldn't. So I advise these younger women to marry again. Have children, take care of their own homes, then the enemy will not be able to say anything against them. For I am afraid that some of them have already gone astray and now follow Satan. If a woman is a believer, who is a believer, has relatives who are widows, she must take care of them and not put the responsibility on the church. Then the church can care for widows who are truly alone. That's a lot of verses about widows. Like really a lot. Why are we talking about this? All right, so Paul paints a picture about different types of widows. So firstly, there are widows who have families and they have the means to, or they have the means to look after themselves, either because their family, their wealth passed to their family when their husband died, as was the old law, or in the new law, they have their own wealth. They got that wealth back when their husband died. And he's saying that these widows have got a means to care for themselves. They've got family, they've got grandchildren, they've got children, they can support themselves. Then he talks about the older or the true widows who have been left without any wealth. So either what happened was they were left destitute when their husband died because he had not looked after that dowry or he had not invested or there was no land. And so when he died, she was left with nothing. And those widows are the true widows that need to be looked after by the church because they are destitute. Those widows have also lived lives of good reputation and they've served in the church. And so when they talk about this list, this list is actually a list of leaders who will go around and minister, wash the feet, so minister to other people in the church. And so Paul is saying an older widow who's unlikely to marry will be able to minister within the church without being distracted by gossip, without being distracted by um, men if they're young enough to marry. And so then he talks about widows who are young enough to marry. And then he talks about the new Roman widow, the one who's got the wealth, and 
who is not of good reputation and has the means to care for themselves. And even though they have the means to care for themselves, they have, are coming to the church for a handout anyway. And Paul is saying we cannot support all these different types of widows. We do not have the financial resources in the church to do that. But it's hard for widows in this passage is quite clear, regardless of which category of widow they fall, fall into. He wants widows to be acknowledged, number one. He wants them to be contributing and valuable members of the church community, either because in their old age they are serving and they've taken on roles of servant leadership, or because they've remarried believers and they are acting as wives and mothers within the church. And so his motive is for women, widows, to live in purity, to protect their witness of the faith, to not bring dishonor on the church and on the reputation of the church. Guys, this was 65 BC, sorry, 65 AD, the church was brand new. It had a reputation to protect. It still has a reputation to protect, but that's another story. We'll talk about it later. And so he commends the families in the community that are living in purity of relationship towards their widows. And he says, if you have a widow in the, in the family, it's your job, your responsibility to care for her. Now in our day and age, We've got people who are spread all over the globe. My mother-in-law is a widow and she's living at the moment in the UK. But she'll be back and then she'll be living in Port Elizabeth and we're living in Joburg. Does it mean that we are, because we are geographically separated from her, we do not have an obligation to her? No. Does it mean because you've immigrated to New Zealand, you do not have a financial obligation to ensure that your parents who have been left in South Africa are, are cared for? No. It, it, ge geography doesn't change the obligation of family to care for their widowed parents. Because if we do that, if we abandon them, then they have no one to care for them. And it's important that we stay connected. So, these different types of widows are to be treated differently. But the, the common thread here is, is clear. They are to be fully contributing members of the church in one way or another, living in a way that brings honor to the name of Christ. Bad 1 Corinthians 15 verse 33 says, bad company corrupts good character. And what has happened with these new Roman widows is that they have associated with uh, false teachers. And if we just go back and, and it says here, verse, in verse six, 1 Timothy um, 5 verse 6 says, the widow who lives only for pleasure is spiritually dead even while she lives. And in verse 15 it says, I'm afraid that some of them have already gone astray and follow Satan. Remember that a lot of 1 Timothy is written about 
tackling the heresy and the false teaching that was starting to creep into the church, into this new faith that was literally only 65 years old. I mean, 2,000 years later, how far astray could we have gone if they had not put a pin in it and said, uh, guys, this teaching is not accurate. You have to change it. You have to stop it right now. In our life group on Friday night, we were discussing how if a yacht is two degrees of course, the minutest little error will cause it not to reach its destination a thousand kilometers away. Anybody remember grade 11 physical science? Vector diagrams, that protractor, and you had to measure, and it was so easy to get the answer wrong. It is so easy to get the answer wrong when we take theology and we change it just a little bit. And this is what was happening, is these widows were involved with the false teachers. And so they were hearing, um, and the false teachers were submitting themselves to deceiving spirits. They were being deceived. They were speaking demonic doctrine. They were telling lies, hypocritical lies. They were forbidding marriage. So these widows thought that they weren't allowed to get married because now it was forbidden. They were imposing food laws. This is the kind of false teaching that people were getting involved in and some of them had already walked a journey with the false teachers and this is why Paul says they were already spiritually dead. They've already gone astray. We've got to stop the rest of the widows from going down the same path. Vulnerable women were being taken advantage of by false teachers. And so because they felt that remarriage wasn't allowed, they then joined the crowd that were flaunting their new wealth and being promiscuous and damaging the, the church community's reputation. So Paul puts false teachers and young widows who are participating in this practice in the same bucket. Just because you are in a vulnerable people group doesn't absolve you from staying true to the faith, from from staying true to the word of God. So they were gaming the system. Now, they were coming and they were saying, I'm a widow, I need my handout, please. Gaming the system is tantamount to corruption. Sometimes when there's a social problem in the community, we say, okay, it's fine. The church must handle this one. The church must handle refugees. The church must handle orphans. The church must handle people who don't have enough food to eat. The church must handle homelessness. But the fact of the matter is that financial resources in a church are finite. In fact, they are directly proportional to the giving of the congregation. And in those days, there was no diversification of revenue in the church. There was no record label. There were no book deals. There were no property portfolios like some of our mega churches have. It was literally just what people brought. Some some people sold their properties and brought that into the church. But that was all there was. 
Now, for the record, yes, New Creation does have a record label. How many songs have we got? Four. <laughs> I promise you that's not bringing in the big bucks. <laughs> but we'd love it to, but it's not. Um, as to my knowledge, there have been no book sales. Paul, when are you going to write that book? There's a book, book in every one of us. You know what they say. Um, and we, we don't have a property portfolio. In fact, do we own this land? We own this land that the church is on. Whew. But we don't own Cresta, hey? No. Okay. And guys, the scone and barista sales after the service are literally like just break even. Okay, they're not break even. <laughs> so what that means is, you know, when it, when it comes to this church, we don't have all those extra, those extra things that some of our mega churches do. And, I'm, and I'm, let me say right now, I'm not saying that that's wrong. I'm not saying it's wrong to invest wisely if you're a church. But the church, and the church acknowledges that it is called to help vulnerable people. In James 1 verse 27, it says, pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. And what Paul is describing here is widows who are gaming the system, they have wealth or families who can care for them, and they still expect the church's support. Paul is calling out corruption. Professor William Gumbel, let's, let's bring it back to South Africa, why don't we? I mean, Ephesus a long time ago, let's bring it back here. Professor William Gumede, who is an associate professor at WITS, published an article last year called No More Holy Smoke Screens. Churches must lead the anti-corruption campaign, crusade. 80% of South Africans claim to be a member of a church. That's leaders. That's business leaders. That's politicians. That's influencers. That's teachers. That's the head of an NGO. That's you and me, average Joe. And yet, why do we still have the problems that we have with corruption if 80% of the church are living in moral purity? Because they're not. Gamede, and I'm quoting his article, churches have a key role to play in tackling the slide into corruption brought about the country's moral crisis. Before churches can tackle public market and citizen corruption, they must combat corruption within their own ranks. Churches must work towards restoring South Africa's overarching societal integrity, moral purity, and good behavior norms. That's what Caesar did in 66 what we need to do now. Encourage acceptable behaviors and reject corrupt behavior. It takes bold behavior from the pulpit to do this. And then it takes bold behavior in your own workplaces, in your own NGOs, in your own families to do this. We need to take a moral stand and call out corrupt behavior and put a stop to it in our churches, the church has never been more relevant than it is today, especially in South Africa. But we have to look after our own moral purities first. Why have we drifted so far? We're talking about this in life group. 
Why have we drifted so far? Is it because we only have to adhere to the spiritual absolute so we don't have to worry about the other stuff? <clears throat> I don't know if any of you remember Jed and Janelle Troy. They were American missionaries that worked here about 10 years ago, and they started a, pro a program called Paradigm Shift. And Jed and Janelle love South Africa. And I met up with her last year when she was, this year, when she was here. One of the things they used to say that they loved about South Africans was that we would make a plan. You know? Oh, shucks, the venue is locked. Okay, it's okay, we make a plan. We like get this small kid and he can jump through a window and then he'll open the door from the inside. Make a plan. It would never happen in America. <laughs> they just, you just, we wouldn't make a plan. But I think we've taken it too far, you know? And I'm going to be vulnerable with you right now. So my family and I took a trip to the UK. We went to visit friends and family and just travel for the first time you were allowed to travel since COVID. <clears throat> and so we took this, we took this trip to, to the UK, we saw friends and family and we stayed outside of London because staying in London, oh my goodness, have you seen the exchange rate? And um, we needed to get train tickets to go into London to go and see some sites. And so our friends had an app that they used to look at train ticket prices and you could book it online and then collect it at the station and all so easy. So I had the same app because I was prepared. I'm a prepared traveler. And um, I was looking on the app and he was looking on his app and he was like, okay, so I found one. This is what it's going to cost you. I was like, oh, but I found one is much cheaper. And he was like, yeah, but you're not traveling at that time and you can't use that rail card. And I was very happy to bend the rules to suit my pockets preference. And our friends who have lived there for three years gave us some funny looks. We have become very comfortable living in those gray areas, gaming the system. Guys, it's tough. I know it's tough. We have had an electricity meter problem at our house for years. Literally, that thing will just spaz out and reset itself, and we, there's nothing we can do until one of the meter technicians comes, resets it, and then, yeah, electricity is all good for a while. And so the city power guy, you know, the first line responder, he'll come and he'll take his testing kit and he'll test here and he'll jump up the pole and he'll test there. He's like, oh, I think it's your meter. And I'm like, yes, I know it's my meter because this happens fairly regularly. And he says, we're going to have to call the meter guys. And I'm like, oh, I know we're going to have to call the meter guys. He's like, okay. So, 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 you know, in the interim, can you do something to reconnect me? And he's like, no but you can ask your electrician to bypass, but I can't, I'm not allowed to do that. So a quick call to my electrician will get me switched on for a couple of days until the meter guy arrives. Illegal connection, because I'm bypassing the meter. The food in my fridge or my freezer is defrosting. I'm in the dark, it's cold. I've hosted a party for 45 people like this. You know, I still didn't bypass that meter because he said illegal connection. And I was like, no, it's illegal. I'm not going to do that. But it's okay for me to game the system on an app. 
Do you see what I'm saying here? It's about the condition of our hearts. How do we take back ground in this country if we as Christians are so comfortable living in gray areas? We have to individually and collectively as the church take up the standard for moral purity and refuse to let the world corrupt us. We have to make our inward commitments to God, to his calling of purity, and then implement that in an outward faith response. God, I'm not gonna do this, and I'm going to trust that you are going to make the situation okay if I take a stand for moral purity like you're asking me to. And at this point in time, the church is not able to offer support to a wider base because of the siphoning that is happening at the top. If we collapse that pyramid, there's more to go around. But because we have such an acute pyramid, there's just less available because of all of the siphoning that's happening at the top of the pyramid. Now we move on to elders. 1 Timothy 5, 17 to 18. Elders who do their work well should be respected and paid well, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you must not muzzle an ox to keep it from eating as it treads out the grain. Those who work deserve their pay. Right, so this links back to the first few chapters where we talk about respecting elders, but now we're asked to support them. We appreciate in this church, this church appreciates its volunteers and it appreciates its elders and its shepherding elders and it's everybody that makes life work on a Sunday and midweek because we know that they've add value to the church as a whole. So the staff at the church make sure that there's the equipment available for people to be able to go out and minister, whether that means airtime for our pastors or a laptop so that they can write their sermons, or maybe it needs petrol so we can get out to fine town. Maybe it's just as simple as airtime so that we can make things work in the background. Maybe it's a bucket of sweets for Friday night jam or loaves of bread so we can make sandwiches and take them into the community. It doesn't matter. We need to support our elders and our pastors so that they have what they need so they can do their work. We cannot take advantage of people in church leadership just because it's church. That shows that you don't value it. If you don't, where where you put your value, that is what you value. Now, if I was to go and speak at a conference, which I did last week, they paid me for my time to get there. Sorry, they paid me for my time when I was there. They paid me for the hours and hours that it took me to prepare my keynote. They paid for my transport and my accommodation. That's a business, paying me as a business person to go and do my job. Why do we not do that for our pastors? When a pastor comes to preach at our church, we give them an honorarium. Why? Because we need to cover at least the petrol that it took them to get here. It's not okay to expect people, to expect pastors, to expect elders to do what they need to do and not give them the resources that they need to do it because it doesn't communicate value. It doesn't honor them. 
If I was looking for a kids' ministry expert, I would choose Pete. He's been working in kids' ministry for 17 years. He's got 17 years' experience in kids' ministry. Should he not speak at a conference? Should he not be paid a conference speaker's fee? Of course he should, because he's an expert. We've got to pay people what they are due. We've got to pay people so they can keep going. Because if we don't pay, they can't do. They have to find something else to do. And that would be very sad. 5, 19 to 21. Do not listen to an accusation against an elder unless it's confirmed by two or three witnesses. Those who sin should be reprimanded in front of the whole church. This will serve as a strong warning to others. I solemnly command you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus and the highest angels to obey these instructions without taking sides or showing favoritism to anyone. Never be in a hurry about appointing a church leader. Do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Do not only drink water. Timothy had a stomach problem. You, that's all I'm going to say. You ought to drink a little wine for the sake of your stomach because you are sick so often. How many of you here know that if you are often sick, you cannot work? They didn't have plumbing in those days. Remember the sins of some people are obvious, leading them to certain judgment, but there are others whose sins will not be revealed until later. In the same way, the good deeds of some people are obvious and the good deeds done in secret someday will come to light. How do we keep corruption out of our church leadership? Paul gives some sage advice to Timothy. He says, don't take sides. Don't show favoritism, no nepotism. These three things, they all fall into that corruption bucket, don't they? Be considered when you're appointing leaders. How many of you know it's very hard to unappoint somebody once you've appointed them, especially in this country? NPA, anyone? <laughs> Don't allow yourself to be corrupted by others. Peer pressure and societal norms are not necessarily God's ideal. So keep your associations pure. Timothy, as a church leader, cannot allow himself to associate with people who are getting involved in impure things, who are getting involved in corruption. And then Paul says to Timothy, he needs to look after his health. He needs to drink a little bit of wine with his water to kill the germs. A leader who is often sick cannot be effective. But Timothy has been looking after his witness with absolute purity because in a previous letter to the Ephesians, 5 verse 18, Paul says, do not be drunk with wine. And so this has been interpreted to do not drink wine. And Paul is saying that that complete abstinence is hurting Timothy's health. And he's asking to drink wine, not to get drunk, but for medicinal reasons. That's what he's asking for. Drinking wine is not a biblical absolute. So by doing this, Timothy is not going to be committing heresy or false teaching. But it may be something that you are personally convicted about, and that's okay. Provided you don't enforce your personal convictions and judge other people for that. Paul writes that sin in secret will come to light. 
It's important to address these issues. They need to be substantiated, not based on feelings. Truth shed light, sheds light on corruption, but the corrupt may lash out with unsubstantiated accusations. And so therefore, when somebody is feeling hurt and shamed and offended, what do they do? They blame. They might blame their leadership. And so Paul tells Timothy, if this is to happen, please make sure that you, have, you do some correlation, you do some triangulation of data. Don't just take one person's word for it. And make sure that we have true accountable relationships with our leaders. You can be like, this sounds like something they may have done, or mm -mm, this is off. <clears throat> In the last few years, there have been accusations brought against the, the mega influential churches fraud, sexual misconduct, inappropriate relationships, abuses of power, control, bullying, racism. It's horrible. It's horrible to see what is happening in churches like Hillsong. The world is watching. That Hillsong documentary was one of the most watched documentaries on Disney+. Plus. The world is watching. Isn't that great? Church, the world is watching us. We have such a great opportunity because the world is watching us. What are we doing with it? Let's make sure that we are honoring God, that we are honoring Christ, that we are transparent, that we are living in a way that it's easy to be transparent because we have nothing to hide. Last verse, chapter six. All slaves should show full respect for their masters so they will not bring shame on the name of God and his teaching. If the slaves are believers, that is no excuse for being disrespectful. Those slaves should work all the harder because their efforts are helping other believers. Wow. Slaves, firstly, let me say that this verse is not condoning slavery, okay? Slavery was, in those days, something that was socially acceptable. It is not socially acceptable in South Africa. However, there are still 50 million people in the world. 50 million people in the world. Let me say that again. 50 million people in the world who are still enslaved in forced labor or forced marriage 50 million people. Slavery talks about a situation that is unjust and unfair. Let's bring it home to South Africa. Let's think about all of the people living here as refugees and asylum seekers who have doctorates and are security guards because they can't access because they've been treated unfairly. Let's talk about all the people who would rather go home but can't, because it's not nice. And they could be persecuted, or they can't get a job, and their family would starve. That's unjust, that's unfair. What is God asking us to do? What is Paul saying we should do when we are in an unjust and an unfair situation? He's asking us to continue to uphold the reputation of Christ. 
to continue to bring honor into the church. Luke 10 verse three says, remember I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. God is sending us out into the world and guess what? For all of us, it's not gonna be a fair fight because God wants us to go into the world meek as lambs, armed with love and grace and truth, not angry and full of vengeance. God wants us to minister to the world in an unjust situation, in an unfair fight. He wants us to minister in the opposite spirit, countering the bad with the love of God. Where there is vengeance, he wants us to bring a spirit of forgiveness. Where there is judgment, he wants us to respond with acceptance. Where there is spitefulness, he wants us to respond with self-control. Where there is lack, he wants us to respond with abundance. Where there is fear, he wants us to respond with faith. Where there is condemnation, we are there to bring his forgiveness. Where there is hate, he wants us to bring his kindness. Why does God make us do this? Because he wants to destroy the work of the devil through your life. When we respond in the opposite spirit, we break the work of the devil. Because only when we respond with the spirit can we respond in the opposite spirit. And it's only the Holy Spirit that brings out that good fruit that we spoke about when we did Galatians 6. So in an unfair situation, be the light. Okay, so we've wrapped up, and it's a little bit late, and I do apologize, and that's what you get for giving me 28 verses. But <laughs> on the surface, just to conclude... This, pa this passage, when, you, when I first read it, I was like, oh, okay, elders, widows, and slaves. No, this passage is about so much more than that. This passage is about bringing honor. It's about bringing honor to one another in the way that we treat each other. It's about bringing honor to the church so that we look like a church that people wanna be a part of, that we look like a church that people wanna trust with their lives. And it's about bringing honor to God.